John 14. I think we're at the very end. Crawling our way through. All right, so we left off at 26. Did we get that? Well, I mean, technically we finished it, but I know we said we didn't get everything out of it. Oh, we did get it. That's right. 25 to 30, Mm -hmm. we were, Mm -hmm. or 31. I'm stuck on um, verses 25 and 26. I have said these things to you while I am still with you, but the the parakletos, I'm going to just use the Greek, (laughs) since that word has so many different meanings. The one alongside us, the advocate, the counselor, comforter. Anyway, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all I have said to you. Two things. What is this I've said to you? It will send in my name. What does it mean to send someone in your name? Character. Character. There is also another way of looking at this, and, and I don't want to detract from character because that's where I immediately go. But there's another way to look at this. In ancient times, if a king sent a messenger or someone, or representative, someone on his behalf, he would send in his name, meaning this is my representative, and he's not someone else's representative. So it's, it's the ownership, it's, it's that you can trust that the Holy Spirit will be in, in sync with me, he will speak my message to you, he will, he will represent me correctly, uh, he will represent my character. So it, it, it has a little bit of a stronger, sharper nuance, I think, than just saying character. The other thing, he will teach you everything. Has the Holy Spirit taught us everything? I feel like a lot of times we leave the Holy Spirit out, and we feel like we're learning more from like the Father or Jesus. So I don't know why. Okay. But has he taught us? Every, but but aside, that aside, assuming that the Holy Spirit is still working, even though we don't recognize him, uh, has he taught us everything? And this is primarily the reference to verse twenty-six. Yeah, yeah. We'll teach you all things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think I feel like it's like a two-folded statement, like in the sense that he he could have taught us everything, but at the same time, we may not always be paying attention to everything that he's saying. Because if you look at kind of like the state where we are right now if he had taught us everything we were paying attention to that I think that we would all be in a different state maybe in heaven instead yeah. of on earth <laughs> um, it also depends yet. on our capacity to receive like what yeah. you were just saying earlier uh, we can very easily close off the light because we have these choices and it, it's written you know do not quench the spirit uh, in Ephesians uh, 6 but how many times do we quench the spirit yeah. We have our opinions, and our opinions tend to override a lot of things. It, it strikes me that Seventh-day Adventists especially have had the temptation to think we have all the light. It's a very subser- subversive temptation and very effective on the part of Satan, is it not? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think historically, if, if you traverse the landscape... Um, the light that is shown in 1888, for example, got quenched to a great extent. And later on, it tried to, there was an attempt at a revival. Uh, but the church went through all kinds of metamorphoses uh, in that process of, of adopting kingly power, of adopting verbal inspiration, of, of a whole host of things that came in as errors that Ellen White vigorously spoke against. And then in 1925, A.G. Daniels tried to revive the 1888 message. Uh, short-lived, very short-lived. And from then on, it was like we let, were in lockdown mode. You know, we have the truth. And all we need to do is go and beat up our neighbors with it, you know, pound the Bible over their heads and, and convert them. And that was the way it was for about almost the next 50 years. Uh, it was in the 1970s, late 1960s, 70s, that I first began to hear that, you know, God does, just doesn't want you to repent. He actually forgives you. Um, I never heard that message as a child, that God forgave. 
especially in sermons. And I was forced to listen to sermons at a very, very young age. No, There were no felts. There were no mm-hmm. toys. Uh, I sat on the front row of Laurelwood Academy Chapel, and I wasn't allowed to do anything. Yeah, I even read my guide as I got older. Um, the academy students behind me would pick up my guide and read it. So I was a great, I was a great Pharisee, and thinking I'm better than they because I don't read my guide. But uh, but there's but, so much in that what what you, what you just said about some of the earlier uh, preachers where. Sabbath morning, there would just be this hum in the air that you were so looking forward to the Sabbath day message. You can remember these days back then when there was no such thing as PowerPoint. You see, when the pastor would get up in front of the church and he'd look up uh, this passage in this message and you could see that the pastor would just lit up with the Holy Ghost speaking and going from Scripture to passage to Scripture to passage. And when we get this thing called PowerPoint and other things, do we not inhibit the movement of the Holy Ghost? I miss those days. <laughs> hey, the, yeah, I think I've been how to use it. I remember when Arnold Beats, Dr. Beats, came by doing our pre-session, mm-hmm. and he made this statement. It says, PowerPoints, PowerPoint reduces learning, I think he was like 70%. Yes, it does. It, studies show that. That I remember one of my first research projects at the university was was how we receive metaphors, and if if you do if you tell someone remember this this this, but if you put it in a metaphor like a story, mm-hmm. it's about four times more rememberable. Our brains work on story; they don't work on digits, like like parables. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it's that that kind of same thing. It, the difficult thing, I think, often with PowerPoint, it's digit, you know, it's kind of a digital. When you, when you, when I hear you tell a story, then my brain creates all this other stuff, and, the, mm-hmm. and it creates mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. context. I think. You know. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe with that, we should look at this passage as story. <laughs> what is your story of the Holy Spirit? Uh, has He taught you everything? Back to I think you, what you said, Peter, about our ability to receive, it is uh, somewhere in my 50s, early 50s, <laughs> I'm giving myself away here, I came to realize that so much of my ability to understand God and His ways was developmental process. It wasn't even like peeling an onion where you, know, you just keep going through the layers until you finally reach the core. It was more like the brain actually is working and developing. And until you've developed certain hardware, you cannot comprehend certain truths. And so, so it's very developmental. And I began to understand that maybe sin was something like that. That until I started understanding what sin was doing to me and the process of sin and, and how it was working on my mind and on my heart and on my life, I had no power to resist it. I didn't even know it was there. I didn't even comprehend what aspects of sin were still in my life. But it was very powerful and effective. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. That's but but not, not able to understand the mechanisms and, and how it works. So the Holy Spirit must just long... For us to shut up <laughs> and grieve and listen and, and listen. Do we listen? We've already talked about verse twenty-seven adequately. I think um, this verse thirty. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Why is that a reason for Jesus to stop talking? This is somewhat cryptic language, so we have to unpack it. I feel like it kind of has to do with the last part of it. And he has nothing in me. He has no power over me. What is the prince of this world coming to do? To kill him. To kill him. The prince of this world is going to kill Jesus. He is the murderer of Jesus. And so that's going to stop Jesus from talking much. 
is after the death after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he only meets with the disciples a few times and talks with them a few hours. And that's it. But he has no power over me. It doesn't look that way to the disciples, does it? Not when Jesus is dead. But I do as the Father has commanded me. I think what Jesus is saying is, you know, I, I wouldn't have to let him take my life. I could avoid this whole thing. He touched briefly on verse 27, and I think that's probably one of the most beautiful things that Jesus did when he said, My peace I give you. So you're saying he has no power, the ruler of this world has no power over Jesus because Jesus has perfect peace. Oh, think about this. What power do any of us, and and our Lord gave us this, that no matter what you do to me, you hate me, you abuse me, I still love you. And guess what? I forgive you. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing you can do about that. That's power. That's the true power, you know, and, and I... I don't normally use movies, but there's a powerful, powerful scene in Schindler's List where they've had a banquet, a party with the SS officers. And one of the SS officers who is particularly ruthless and evil uh, is talking, having a private conversation with Schindler. And he says to Schindler, you know, you control your beer. You don't, you don't get drunk. How do, how do you do that? You're, you have power. And Schindler says, no, no. He says, that's not power. He says, he says, we think we have power over these people because we can kill them. But that's not power. True power, he says, is when we forgive them. And he goes on to elaborate that. It's, it's a very powerful scene. And, and by the way, there's an antecedent to this, to, to your comment, in Numbers 14. I took you there last week, didn't I? Was it your last week? Oh, that's yeah. right. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Do you remember Numbers 14? I know we went back, but I don't remember the exact I think it was Numbers 14. Let's go, again. <laughs> Let's go there again. <laughs> to me, this is the pinnacle of Moses. From there, it was downhill, I'm afraid. But... Um, he says one of the most sublime things, mm-hmm. in fact, two of the most sublime things. This is when they're at Kadesh Barnea, and they refuse to go on the promised land. What verse are you at? Well, let's start with verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for in your might you brought up this people from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land that you, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face. I was using it in that context. Mm -hmm. The face to face God. The active God. Not the still face God. Okay? And your cloud stands over them, and you go in front of them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people at one time, then the nations who have heard about you will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land he swore to give them, that he has slaughtered them in the wilderness. And now therefore, let the power of the Lord be great in the way that you promised when you spoke, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting iniquity of the parents upon the children through the third and fourth generation. Forgive the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have pardoned this people from Egypt even till now. Moses is quoting what God said to him when he made his glory, when he revealed his glory. He's quoting and he's emphasizing one thing. This is your power, God, that you forgive them. Um, so, yeah, that just fits right with what you were saying. <clears throat> so, are you saying that Satan had no power over Jesus because he forgave Satan? 
Isn't that possible? Say that question again. <laughs> Are you saying that the reason Satan has no power over Jesus is that he forgives him? He forgave him at the cross. Unknown. You know, excellent point, though, because what we have in this war that we've been dropped down into is we have this survival manual, or I like to call it a safety manual. And it would seem that there are some things that we're just simply not to know about. And when we, when any of us return to the safety manual in the middle of this war, what does the safety manual say and what do we do? And continually comparing, what does it say? What do we do? What does it say? What do we do? Then, and only then do we get this closeness of the comforter that was talked about early on in chapter 14. The comforter also referred to as the Holy Ghost, also known as the Spirit of Truth. And in the Spirit of Truth, then we come back, what does it say? What do we do? James chapter 1, if we are not doers of what this says, who then gets deceived? Anybody? James chapter 1? Somewhere around verse 20? Who? Does. Right. So when any of us, regardless of where we are in our lives, come to a place where we find something in the survival, survival manual and we do something different than what is in Scripture, we deceive ourselves. And then what does it say in Hebrews chapter 10 when we knowingly do something different than what Scripture says? That there is what? No remission for sins? It's fascinating. And so in our beloved denomination today where I'm so brokenhearted about watching so many of my brothers and sisters engage in war, and it would seem like at the top decision maker level, we have power and control. And so when we come down to every jot and the tittle, depending on which translation you read, and some of the simple things, and we start to line ourselves up with even the simple things, that when we come to that truth and we practice it, we, we put it into use, then we become different. Then we have our capacity to receive the Holy Ghost is different. Like an old-style radio where you had to tune it in, we line up with Scripture. We're like the, not like the new radio where you push a button and it, either you get it or you don't. But when we tune ourselves in by lining ourselves up with Scripture, we become different people because then the Holy Ghost gets to move and work within us what we didn't have before. But it, but it, but it, takes, it takes self-awareness to do that. And, and the problem, I think, with us is that we get into modes where we just, we are so right that we cannot see ourselves. Above Scripture. Yeah. Even the simple things. Yeah. Doug? Yeah, Gina, I think that there's, I don't know if it's a direct parallel, but this, I, I love this concept, the power of forgiveness. Um, and I know I, I experienced that. Uh, I was in my doctoral program in counseling. And I'd been pushed out of my hometown. There was a new, new pharaoh came in and didn't like what I was doing. And I was just devastated. I grew up there and it was embarrassing and just that. I remember I went to a retreat and we were, we were ex- experimenting with experiencing this stuff. And when I received the gift of forgiveness mm-hmm. and let that go and actually you know, went over to the, per- you know, this is a whole group dynamics that happened, it was the spirit just fell. And when I let go, let go of that, went over and just said, hey, I'm so sorry, I've had these feelings and this, and the freedom, you know, the power and the freedom. You know, I just felt like I was walking on air for three days, and for, and it was, I always look at it back as a tremendous metaphor, there's nothing in humanistic psychotherapy the next three years I would study, and practice even came close to that power. Now they're picking it up. Yeah, they're using it. <laughs> they're using it, but but they don't have the they real have article. They don't have the real article because yeah. their emphasis is on you got to forgive them for yourself. Yeah. That to me is not forgiveness. Yeah. Forgiveness yeah. is for the other person. Yeah. It is not for myself. Doctor Stoop kind of developed that. Uh, I'd worked for you know New Life Clinics for a number of years, and he wrote his book on you know forgiving. 
yourself for giving. But he, he, they, these Christian therapists caught this concept. But it's it's a gift. I use it for, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, abandonment, the nastiest thing. And I always stand in awe when God gives well, gives that person that they're just free. I they're can, free to love. And I free can, to I can talk about this from my own personal experience. I think the most dramatic time that I found forgiveness in that way was for about two years, I had a stalker in my life. Um, he was my cousin, and he proposed to me to marry me. And I said, no, I can't marry you. You are my cousin. And uh, he, he still kept trying to hang around and managed to find out where I lived. And... Uh, when I refused to go out to eat with him, he came that night and started throwing rocks at my house. At least that's the only thing I could assume because I knew no one else would throw rocks at my house. <laughs> yeah, right. <Get> angry, <laughs> <laughs> and um, terrorized me. I mean, I'd just be falling asleep, ping, right against. I had a metal-sided mobile, single-wide mobile. And I ended up picking up strange triangular rocks beneath my bedroom window, so many that I ended up with a bucket and a half <laughs> of rocks. <laughs> and he terrorized me for two years. And one day, this is painful to mention because it's embarrassing, but one day, uh, in my mind's eye, I stood on the back porch and drew a bead between his eyes. Just a flit of imagination. Just, And I said, he's gotten you. He's really gotten you. <laughs> and so I... Uh, I went to God, and, and, and I knew I had to forgive him, and I didn't want to. And I remember literally trying to find a key text in my Bible that would let me off the hook. So I wouldn't have to forgive him. And finally, I said, God, okay, I know I'm supposed to forgive him, and I can't. If I'm to forgive him, you have to enable me to forgive him. Right. And it was like right. God took him. He had become a monster in my head. God took him. And, and shrunk him to this little tiny figure <laughs> and put his light all around him. It was like I saw this image in my head of this little tiny figure and this light all around it. And he said, he is my child and I love him. And through the eyes of God, I came to love him. And I took in my imagination the longest, darkest journey I was afraid of to the point of there was no fear. That's beautiful. Yeah, there was no that. fear. And I had been so deeply terrified of this man that I would have nightmares that was just would just strangle me. I, I would try to call, get out or say something like that because he was in my dream haunting me. I would try to just tell him to leave and, and I would be just strangled trying to talk and not able to get it out. That was how terrified I was. And after that night, that binding spell of fear was just broken, just absolutely broken. I was never so afraid of him again. That's a gift. And, and, and this is... Perfect love casts out fear. That mm-hmm. I learned that experientially right. that night. I believed it theoretically before, but now I knew it was true. But I'd, I'd like to come back to Jesus saying that, that he has no power over me. And take you to Revelation 12. <laughs> I did a crazy thing one time. I got my father to be a partner in my craziness. We each counted the words in Greek of Revelation, 4 to 21. Counted all the words. We left out the hose and the haze and uh, articles because in, at the time it just didn't make sense to count them. And now I understand why because John is very Hebraic in his thinking. And in Hebrew those articles aren't separate. They're not separate words. So we didn't count those. We counted the major words. And uh, the midpoint of Revelation 4 to 21 is in verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Now, we know that Satan was cast down at the cross. 
but as the accuser of the brethren. What about Jesus' death? Cast down the accuser of us all. And for me, it comes from this, the viewpoint that has been expressed that God the Father, with all the armies of heaven, approached the cross as Jesus died. And there, for the first time, perhaps, since the great controversy, since Satan was thrown out of heaven, for the first time, the Father, God the Father, and Satan had a face-to-face. What kind of look did God give Satan? Here he has murdered his own son. I think we can know what kind of look he gave. Because Jesus, hours before, had stood before the Sanhedrin, and Judas came in, threw his money down on the temple floor, and said, I have betrayed innocent blood, O Caiaphas. And Jesus looked at Judas with pity and love. If the Father looked at Satan with that kind of forgiveness, where does Satan have to go? Can he win with any of us? Can he accuse us to the point where the Father will say, oh, I won't have anything to do with him or her? No. If the Father would forgive Satan when he has just murdered his own son and split apart the divine powers, I'm using Ellen White's words, then he's going to forgive the worst sinner on the planet, and Satan can do nothing about it. And the accuser of the brethren has been cast out. That's God's power. All right. Let's move to 15, shall we? Now we have, to, now we have a metaphor coming up. And um, Annie, why don't you read verses 1 through 11? John 15? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay. Um, I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do not bear fruit, so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is served, severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce more fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. I have loved you even as a father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. What do we learn from this? About salvation. Sometimes we stray a little from that theme, I have an apple tree. Every year I have to get someone to come out and lop off those big shoots, go straight up in the air, and then prune all the branches. What happens if I don't prune? You don't get much fruit. Don't get, and why don't I get much fruit? Anybody know the science of pruning here? All the energy goes to those shoots. <laughs> yeah, they block the sun from the rest Holy of the right. Yeah, they block the sun. You have to open it. There's actually several. I have a gardening book in, at home, and, and they show actually different pictures of how to prune a tree. There's actually different ways of opening it up to the sun so that the sun can nurture what grows. Because if you have too much foliage, those apples just won't ripen, <laughs> and they won't even grow well, and they'll, they'll drop off. Um, unfortunately, now my dad's a whacker. When he he used to prune that tree, uh, and he used to just whack it. I mean, it was just really pruned. 
Uh, we didn't get as many apples, and I pointed that out to him one year. I said, Dad, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, most people I've had prune it don't whack it. And I, I fear that they err on the other side and don't whack it enough. But uh, you think about that. Every, every fall, every uh, early winter, there's pruning going on all over this valley of all the vineyards. Uh, and uh, they take these little hand clippers, you can get an Ace Hardware, and just snip, 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 snip. Do we like that when that happens to us? It's a form of discipline if we accept it. I don't like discipline. I certainly don't like being disciplined by the Lord, but I completely accept it because the Lord knows what's better for me than I know what's better for me. Does Jesus feel that? Remember, this is all connected to him. There's a verse in Isaiah that recounts the way God had to lead the Israelites to the desert. And it says, In all their afflictions, he was afflicted. And how many afflictions did other people bring on Israel? And how many afflictions did they bring on themselves? In all their afflictions, regardless of what the cause was, he was afflicted. So it seems to me that even that pruning process, because Jesus is the vine, he feels the pain coming through. Ouch, I got cut. I got cut off. And we scientists are now showing that nature communicates with one another. So trees communicate in groups with one another. And so there's, and, and that, and I believe there's been some studies done on when you cut, when you cut a tree, a limb off a tree, there's a certain, if you could hear it, there'd be a scream. Now, how much that is actually affected by the tree, but I do believe that every, everything like that does have an effect on the whole. I think that God feels the discipline that we have. I believe that he suffers with us, necessary though it is. Anything, yeah. I think a parent feels that too. Oh, you know, definitely. You know the discipline, but you, you don't like doing it. You don't feel, you know, yeah. you feel the pain with the child. Yeah, I think I think back to the one and only spanking I got. Which, by the way, I, I found something rather haunting. And, and I shared it with several of my classes. The room got very somber. A study has been done that shows that spanking, particularly hard spanking, I think, uh, is, is reflected. That spanking actually reduces gray matter. And it reduces gray matter in the area of the brain that practices self-control. So that actually spanking children actually does the opposite of what we're trying to effect. Indeed, I can bear testimony. I'm one of those parents that um, uses no violence policy. And there are some that argue against that, but you have just confirmed that here. But in the bigger picture, we know that Jesus did not physically harm anyone. And yes, it is possible to parent without violence, but it requires commitment on the part of the parent. Well, it, it requires the parent to emulate the thing that they want in the child. Uh, spanking is a way of controlling. We, we tend to con- try to control others to the extent that we lose our own internal locus of control. Mm-hmm. And, and so it stems from that. Uh, but I did get a spanking once as a child. It was, it was laughable uh, in terms of pain. <laughs> there was no pain. <laughs> but I was, in, I was indignant. I, I was chanting "Mean Mama" under my in my head. And she took me out and she said, "Now we're going to pray." And I was, to, I knelt down. I think that was during the time I was an atheist. I knelt down, and. She began to pray, and I was thinking how mean she was. And all of a sudden I heard a strange sound, and I looked up, and she was crying. 
completely changed my whole perception of that spanking. Just completely. And she never needed to do it again. But to me, that discipline in love has a completely different effect than discipline in anger. So this is not this, uh, when the Father starts clipping away at us, Jesus is giving comfort from the vine as the Father prunes. And it's interesting, uh, in the Geneva, verse 2, the second half of verse 2 says, And everyone that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth... Right. The science of pruning is to pick the right branches to cut. The ones that look like the least fruitful are the ones you cut away to make the more fruitful ones. And even the fruitful ones, you cut the tops for them to be able to really bear fruit, to strengthen them, to to bring more nourishment into them. If you want to experience that, come over to my vineyard. i got about ten more rows. We can each take a row. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's, tough. that's the tough decision, especially with this yeah. grape stuff. I prune everything that isn't growing straight up because I don't want all these things in my right. rows I can't get through. Right. And you have to choose which ones look like they're going to be strong and produce, and then you leave a couple buds. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's an interesting. I really like the idea of the comfort that he comforts while he while he disciplines. He does it in love. You don't get rebellion. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. If you know the Father is doing this because he loves you and it will help you grow and improve, it's a totally like you were saying. You a totally different attitude than if. You discipline, it you is, always get rebellion. It is, no, it is no, it is no longer violent. It yeah, is the anger that is violent uh, that drives that violence in and makes it force. You see anybody give a spanking because they're somebody's happy? <laughs> no, it's like what you just said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, whack. It's, it is, it is violent. In fact, Ellen White says that, that parents who use that as a regular method are, are, Beating, if they, especially if they beat their child, they're beating in demons into their children. I was one who was whipped. And so I can tell by my testimony, I know what I felt. Mm-hmm. And I knew that the person who was supposed to love me the most, one of my parents, was causing me tremendous pain. Something a little wrong with that picture? Yeah. Yeah, I could tell some abusive stories, but I don't know. Yeah come from my own parents but I thank God that people make the right decision not to emulate what was done to them and their children well uh, let's move on Uh, unless you have something else from this passage that you find whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch if you don't abide in Jesus, you're loose, aren't you? I mean, there's no, you're not there, you're not in him, so what else can you do but throw it away? It's not attached. I think another big part is that, so apart from me, you, can't, you can do nothing. I so without, without the character of God, you can't produce the, the fruit that, that God can produce. Jesus is the part I, the, that without him, he could do nothing. Mm-hmm. If Jesus, who is sinless, could do nothing without the Father then how much more can we do nothing unless we abide in Him? Well, isn't that true? I mean, you detach a, a branch from the vine, and what's going to happen to it? It's going to die. I, I, uh, every once in a while, I'm cleaning up my yard around the apple tree, and, and oh, there's a stray whip that got left. It's useless. It's dead. How pervasive do you think he means that? You can do nothing. You can't change, you can't save yourself, you can't help. Well, without... My perception from Ellen White is that we are dependent on God for every breath we breathe. So there is nothing we can do without Him. And there are no secret places. The Gentile physician writes, the kingdom of heaven is within you depending on which translation you read. It can be either within you or among you, depending on just how you decide to 
render the Greek. And, and once we get that the kingdom of heaven is here, yeah. it's a perspective changer. We learn really the power of love. We come down into verse 10, 15, 10, where in the Geneva it says, If ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. There's that word again, abide. I like mm-hmm. that's a great word to use there, abide in my love. As I have kept my father's commandments and abide this in is, his love. This is the power of overcoming. Mm-hmm. Right there. Because, and I was just reading it this week in Thoughts in the Mount of Blessing, the statement that if we abide in his love, and I think she uses that same word, if we abide in his love, nothing can keep us from fulfilling everything we need in Jesus. Um, I can't remember the exact wording, but it is the idea that we overcome through that means. That is the power. This, this idea that God gives us supernatural power to overcome is, is the idea of God gives us the power to force ourselves to obey. And that is not the principle of, of overcoming at all. The principle of overcoming is to have our love cup so full. We don't need all our addictions. We don't need all our obsessions. We don't need all our greed and our our uh, lust and, and everything else that we Envy, struggle with. Jealousy, Envy, arrogance, errors, everything. We don't need that. Those come from the and and father. and moreover, this is the way we were made to work. This is the way we were made to function. This is not about making us mindless protozoa that can't are helpless. It it is. It is God saying, this is what I created you for. I created you for love. And your deficit, that's why you're doing all these terrible things. Let me fill you with my love, and all of that will just drop off. The primary proviso being the first part of verse 10, if ye shall keep my commandments. (laughs) What does it say? What do we do? What does the safety manual say? And what do we do and yet how can we do it really do it yeah. unless we're filled with this love what is, but what is keeping the commandments it's going to this going to this place yeah. if you're in the zone you are keeping the commandment yeah. um, mm. we, we, without him we you can mind. do nothing is to know him the same as to abide in him is that the scripture is that to know him is like if, if, if you take no as a experiential no, and not intellectual, merely. It has to be experienced. But we are instructed in how we will know because those characters will exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And what are the fruits of the Spirit? You see? Love. Joy. Peace. In fact, some have suggested that because fruit is singular, love is the fruit of the Spirit, and the joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of that is simply attributes of love. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, that's borne out by love is very patient, love is very kind, etc. Going back to the experiential knowledge, because um, like you, can, you can just read it as if you keep my commandments, you can, you can think of it as like, well, abiding by the letter of the law. But in the sense of like, we're saying experiential knowledge, you're not going to want to obey these commandments unless you trust him, unless you know him, unless you experience him. I would, I would maintain you can't obey his commandments unless you do that. Mm-hmm. Obeying the letter of the law is not keeping the commandments at all. <laughs> Did not the Pharisees try that? And how loving were they? <laughs> so, and then Jesus says, verse 8, My Father is glorified by this, <clears throat> that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. I think Satan's original accusation that we could not keep the law is suggesting that there is no such thing as lo- we love because he first loved us. And that it must drive him crazy when God has people who are so in love with him and so focused on him that they can think of nothing else. But to be like him. 
he must just it, because it defies everything he stands for. It defies the very principles he's claimed are at work in, in God's kingdom. And and when when he created his own governance structure in the plain of Shinar, which is where I think he went, he can he created relationships to be externally controlled. He, he created the flip side of the we love because he first loved us model. Uh, and what he did is get us to contrive relationships that were held by legal bonds, by legal clasps that bound us externally so that we would not, we would keep married because legally we had to. We would keep married because we economically had to. We would keep married because, and, and I mean, you can go on down the list. In other words, law, law, law. Exactly. Well, this is so rad. You, know, you shared that with us. That that's what they really believed in. That it is. It is. It's, it's just such a. But it's so powerful. It's so powerful. That's one of Satan's powerful yeah. devices. Remember, steps to Christ. I think it's page thirty-four. How do you know that you're in Christ? How do you know you abide? It's who has your who deepest thought, thoughts? Thought. Who <laughs> has your warmest affection? So it's your mind and your heart. Who do you love to talk about? <laughs> I mean, this is simple, practical description. That I love my parents, but I don't. I don't go around talking about them all the time. But <laughs> the other one that makes me think I've, I've never really unpacked it. I heard someone unpack it, but I think one of the safest places it says uh, that he inhabits. He actually dwells in the praise of his people. When you're in that zone, where you're just flat out lit up, praising God, and, and you're in that posture with Him, that it's about the safest you can get. <laughs> you know, that, um, it is the safe place. God is in Psalm eight, I think it is. God is the safe place to. Oh, you got to read it because it is, and I I wish I had the common English Bible because I, I like their translation. God is a safe place is how they translate it. But I believe it's 8. No, it's not Psalm 8. It's Psalm 9. It's Psalm 9.9. 9. God is a safe place for the oppressed. A safe place in tough times. That's how I would like to translate it. And and to me that is I have found that to be so so very true. And against the fruit of the spirit there is no law. No. It's, it's not out it's outside any legal construct. And to, to illustrate how this works, the word covenant I used to see as a legal thing. And as I've been studying it and studying what God originally planned in the first covenant to Noah, the second covenant to Abraham, that he wanted a covenant of faith, of trust. And Abraham trusted God, and God counted that as his righteousness. And then, unfortunately, Abraham lost his faith a few lines down when God promised him the land. And he said, how do I know that I'll get it? So God has him do a cut a covenant, which is the ancient way of dealing with this cut up animal parts and you pass through them and you take on yourself the terms of the covenant God says wait a minute Abraham don't you pass through this this is my covenant with you I'll pass through and he passes through him in the in the smoking torch and, and uh, the censer and uh, takes on the terms of the covenant go to Sinai God offers them a covenant I will make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation and, and so on and the people say, all the Lord has said we will do. Yeah. And everything changes. Everything changes. The word covenant, barit, is related to a word in Babylonian, barit, that means basically between. Two people. Between. Relationship. Between. It has to do with relationships. It's a very generic word. Babylonians didn't choose that word for treaty. They choose a different word, riksu, which means clasp. It's a bond again, but it's a different kind of bond. It's not a natural bond. 
It's a bond, and if you read the treaties and compare them with the covenants, you really get the sense that in Babylonia, boy, you better keep that treaty, because if you don't, you're going to get cursed out of existence. And it's on force, it's threat of fear. Unfortunately, that's how the Israelites wanted to see the Sinai covenant. It wasn't until much later that the curses and the blessings were added. <laughs> they weren't given at the foot of Sinai. They were added later in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Now, Gene, that is so... It must be ingrained a part of sin. It's the whole control and power over. And I have the hardest time with my couples to get them to believe that love constrains more than rules or control or structure. <laughs> That if you really love someone, you are going to but you see, you see, more than anything. The reason they can't understand that is because they haven't been loved. Yeah. Yeah. And they come out of that structure and control background in their family, and they just don't know how to do it once they get... That's, to them, much. that is love. That's security. That's love. Closest or or the structure get. and control of the church. Well, we do the same thing on a societal level. <laughs> we don't believe... This is, a, this is a very radical message. It's, it's terribly radical. Unbelievably radical. Um, I remember sharing the, the, the creation, the, the natural law, uh, family Sabbath model of creation, and then um, the economics, kingship, and law model of Babylonia. Uh, sharing those two opposites with, with a class, and a student came to me wide-eyed, and she said, do you realize how radical that is? Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, That's why we have to meet every week. And, and, and have you read it again and again? The rest of the week we're bombarded with the other model. That's right. That's right. Well, we need to close. It's that prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you that you have shown us not just a better way, but the only true way. As Jesus put it, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we try to put him in static mode and put him in a little icon and think that we understand those words. But what Jesus is saying is, I, a dynamic living person, wants a relationship with you and the way, the truth, and the life. May we experience him, we may experience a close abiding relationship in, with him. And may that transform us, and may we communicate it effectively to others. Thank you, and bless us through the rest of the Sabbath day. In Jesus' name, amen.